All right, everybody, if we'd make our way back to our seats. You can open your Bibles to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. We're continuing this series in looking at our emotions or our feelings. A subject that probably, if you're like me, maybe makes a lot of us uncomfortable. Or a subject that you are deceptively think you're some kind of expert on. Because that's your way of dealing with your emotions is becoming an expert on them. And so however you slice it, this is an issue that all of us have to grow in as followers of Jesus. We're a church that believes worship is not mainly what happens when we gather together on a Sunday morning. But that all of life is to be submitted to the reign of Jesus. And that's what worship is. And so if we don't do justice in looking at our emotions then there's no way that we can say with any degree of sincerity that we're really wanting to submit all of our life to Christ. Because God has created us as emotional people. And so we're looking at these emotions. Last week we looked at the emotion of hurt. This week we'll look at the emotion of guilt. And our goal in all of this is not to turn us into some sort of morbid introspection, but to call us to look outside to the good news of Jesus. And so we're going to pause here for just a second because we want this to be a practice in our everyday lives that we have to grow in. Our muscles are often weak. Sometimes you ask somebody how they feel, and their first reaction is, I don't know. Or you ask somebody how they feel, and it's the opposite extreme. I feel everything. And, and we've got to learn to discern what's going on in our hearts. We've got to ask God's Word and God's Spirit to help us. So we have these eight emotions that we, we have on a card. I, we may be out of it. If anybody wants this in a digital format, I, I can get you that, and we can order some more. So here are the eight we're looking at. Anger, hurt, lonely, sad, fear, shame, guilt, and glad. So just want to take a moment and just do this to yourself before the Lord. Look down that list and just acknowledge before Him right now, what are you feeling right now? All right, now maybe just take a second and uh, share with God what's behind that feeling. All right, well, let's, let's look at Psalm 32. I just want to encourage you. That's a good practice to bring into your life. These psalms are basically God's people doing that. And we'll, we'll say more about what to do with that as well. Psalm 32. This is the word of the Lord, a mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. 
Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are with us now. We're so grateful, God, that you invited us here. We're so thankful that it's, it's, it's we that need to show up, not you. So help us, God, to be here, to be present. To be attentive to what the Spirit wants to do in our hearts right now. Protect us from mere information gathering. Protect us from our own self-defenses. Put our eyes on Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, this hasn't happened recently, but it might happen if I went up to my kids' bedrooms today. I don't know. thought they might look up from that. There they go. Is sometimes when my wife and I, Cassie, have went to clean their rooms, particularly when they were younger, it was always interesting what you would find when you looked behind the mattresses or under the beds or in the corners is because all of a sudden you discovered that there must be this epic candy stash somewhere. There's all these candy wrappers, there's all these various things that you find. And as a parent who still can remember some what it's like to be a child, but also as you start to think, there's a trash can in the corner of your bedroom. There are trash cans all over this house. Why in the world would you think that it was reasonable to eat your lollipop or your Tootsie Roll or your Reese's or whatever it is and just stuff the candy wrappers beside the bed? Now, part of that may just be laziness. I'm sure that it is. But there's also another part of it. And that part of it is guilt. Is what, what are mom and dad going to think when they look in our trash can in our bedroom and they see this gigantic pile of candy that they know mom and dad would not want them to have in there. And so instead of bringing it out into the light where it needs to go, putting it in the trash can so that you don't have maybe rats and roaches accumulating under your bed as this great feeding place, you, you just stick it in there. Now that may sound crazy and it's easy for us to point the finger at kids but I would argue that some of us, if not all of us, this is how we choose to deal with our guilt. We could take it to God. And we could put it where it goes. And we could have it dealt with. But instead, we just want to stuff it. We, we are scared to death with what that, that little easy walk to God might end up re resulting in. And so we put our lives in danger by things far more, far more destructive than even roaches and rats. As we put the candy wrappers of our sin, the candy wrappers of our shame, just deeper down inside of us, Everyone in here is taking your guilt somewhere. You may think that you're tough. You may think that you're above it. But that's a lie. 
You're not fooling God. And you're not fooling anyone with any sense. And where you're stuffing that guilt, if you're not bringing it to God, it is only making your life worse. Because you cannot avoid its reality. Some of you are stuffing it down into your bodies, and that's why you need substances to deal with it. It's just too much. I've got to numb this. I've got to get rid of it. I've got to do something to calm that noise. Others of you are projecting it onto other people. You feel trapped in it. You feel this hyper sense of responsibility. And so you want to just give it to everybody that comes around you. And some of you are probably stuffing it into your work. You're like, I'm, I'm just going to do better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be the best student Lee University's ever had. I'm going to be the best employee that my business has ever had. Others of you are bringing it into your home. I'm going to be the best spouse that there's ever been, the best dad, the best mom, the best child. And, and the more that you stuff this guilt in all the places that it cannot really live, the, the more you set yourself up for disappointment and pain. It compounds in our lives. But the gospel tells us that we're going to see in Psalm 32, and we see throughout the whole Bible, is we can take it to God and He can handle it. But to do that means we've got to do the work of cleaning house. It means we've got to walk into the light. It means we've got to pull back the bed. It means we've got to look under the mattress. But guilt is real. We've talked about this before, and we'll, we'll keep talking about it as a church because it's such a big thing. There's different times, types of guilt. I need to say this at the outset so that, that some of you who might want to check me on it later at least know that I know what you're talking about. The, there's at least four types. Original guilt that, that comes into our lives just by virtue of being humans in connection with Adam. There's environmental guilt. There's, there's guilt that we just share by virtue of being in relationship with other people and a corporate identity that we sometimes forget as Americans. There's also false guilt. That is, you feeling guilty for things you shouldn't feel guilty for. You didn't do anything, but for some reason you feel guilt. But today we're focusing on this, this issue of, of actual guilt. Of actual guilt. And the resource I've said that, that, that's helping guide our series a lot, The Voice of the Heart, it says it this way, guilt is when we feel we actually do something wrong. Guilt is always about behavior, and this is important, planned or acted. So sometimes we, we should feel guilt for the plans we have in our lives, even if we don't act on them planned or acted toward another, it tells us there is something in the heart that we're not seeing or owning up to. So guilt is like that, that dashboard, like there's something I'm not acknowledging here or there's something I'm not owning up to. It goes on to say, behavior and plans are indications of the state of the heart. We feel guilty about what we do. Not our behaviors often indicate that something is going on inside our hearts that we're refusing to acknowledge, address, respond to, accept. But through guilt, the heart confronts behavior, and behavior, in turn, exposes the state of our hearts. All this is saying is, if we want to be freed from our guilt, the first thing we're going to have to do is listen to it. We're going to have to acknowledge it. And the whole world that we live in 
Maybe that's an exaggeration. Much of the world that we live in is telling us to not listen to our guilt. The world is telling us that guilt has nothing to give you. The world is telling you that God just wants to leave you feeling guilty. The world wants to tell you guilt is just a construct of our imaginations that's been forced on us by living in a cultural context that is steeped in some sort of religious fantasy world. And it's a lie. And you know it when you lay down in bed at night. But the good news is, is that God is not downplaying our guilt. That may not sound like good news at first, but it's really good news for people who deep down know you're guilty. Is He's not here to be this sort of cosmic therapist who wants to, to bring you into some fantasy land and give you a crutch to get through the world. No, He is the God of truth, and yet at the same time, He is the God of grace. He's the God who can handle the truth and give us the grace to handle the truth. But we must take our guilt to Him as the only God who can take our guilt away. So how do we do that? How did David do that? The first thing he did is he stopped rejecting the feeling of guilt. He stopped rejecting it and he stopped accepting living in the prison that guilt brings us into. We see this in the verse 4 verses, but really verses 3 and 4. We're going to circle back to verses 1 and 2 because he starts and you can't... You can't you can't blame him. If you've been freed from this, this prison of guilt, you, you're going to probably start with praise. But we're going to look at verses 3 and 4. So what did David's rejection of guilt look like? So when David refused to own up, when David refused to acknowledge it, when David wanted to live in his secret little world where he acted like he was under control and by keeping things a secret, he had the reins, what, what was that really like? How did that work for him? Well, first off, what we see very clearly here is it wasn't the good life. The enemy wants to tell us that if you, you can create this little hidden life that you live in or manufacture this version of yourself so you don't have to deal with reality and that's going to make you free. And what the enemy offers, the world, the flesh, and the devil, is he does offer a little bit of thrill along with that, Right? Remember, the devil's not walking around with a pitchfork and a red suit, whatever we'll see happening at Halloween. He's an angel of light. He, he gives you half-truths, sometimes 90% truths. That's, he's slick. That's how it works. And so you're going to get a thrill from lying. You're gonna get, you may even really enjoy that you've lived your whole life up to this point with this way of survival that you can tell the truth is in such a way that is mostly true, but you've got this little part over here that keeps you safe. But it's not freedom. It's something you live under the tyranny of managing. It's not the good life. You're not, you're not slick before God. Whether you suppress it, ignore it, or drug it away. This is what it was really like when David told the truth and looked at the truth for what it was. In verse 3 we see his bones wasted away when he kept silent. That is, there is a... Guilt, like all these emotions, is embodied. It's embodied. This language of bones wasting away and the, the, the way the words are used behind it is... It's not just talking in like this, you know, this purely physical sense. Because the Bible does not present people as like with this big body soul 
separation. If you've heard that or learned that growing up, that's not, that's not biblical. No, we, we are unity. Uni, we are, I was going to say a fancy word, I'll say it, and you can just forget it, psychosomatic uni, unity, unity. United people. There we go. Words are hard. <laughs> we're, you, you can't say, well, this part of me's body, this part of me's soul. No, we, we're united. And so what David is saying here is when I kept silent, when I suppressed this guilt, when I didn't deal with it, it wasn't just that I felt bad, like I got sick. I was actually losing myself. Like the essence of who I was was rotting away. Have you ever experienced the feeling of someone else not being there even though they're physically present with you? This is what David's talking about. You start to not be there. You're not there for yourself. You're not there for other people. Voice of the Heart says this, while David was silent, living in refusal of acknowledging his guilt, his Davidness was wasting away. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you in here have dreamed some big dreams for God. Some of you in here have had some big passions for life. But when the guilt of your sin got in there, you stopped dreaming. And you started surviving. You stopped seeking the Lord. You stopped living with purpose. You just wanted to get through the next day. Who you were started to be lost. That's what's happening. And so my groaning all the day long, this language of like a lion roaring, that, that now there's this, this internal dissatisfaction, this internal unrest, this discontent. Verse 4 says, the, the hand of God was heavy upon him. But what we need to see here is that this hand of God that was heavy upon David is, is not a hand that's sent to crush him. It's a hand, this strong, mighty arm of God that's sent to rescue him. It's the severe mercy of God. Because the judgment of God is when he removes his hand. The judgment of God is when he gives us what we want. The judgment of God who says, okay, you just play your game. Play your deceptive game. Play your hidden life. Play your half-truths. Go, go deep as you want in your guilt. Because that's ultimately what hell is. It's getting what we want, which is not God. But when we don't get God, we've got nothing. And we become nothing. And so his strength was sapped, the end of verse 4 says, as if by the heat of summer. David is living as a prisoner of guilt, but his own body is the prison. I remember a relationship that I had one time, and I really think it's probably best largely to speak of it in the past tense. Best friends if not more. And then there this, was this perceived tension that came in the relationship. This was a long time ago. Nobody here related, so don't worry about that. 
there was this growing distance, and then pretty much there became just a nothing. And I, I just racked myself with like, what, what did I do? What happened? And come to find out, it wasn't anything that I'd really done. It was something that they had done, but they hadn't done it to me. But this person started to lose themselves. And in the process, I lost them. They lost me. Guilt is a powerful disruptor. And sometimes, if I'm honest, that person is me. Is me. When we take our guilt to the wrong places, it disrupts us holistically. Mind, body, soul, relationships. You know this physically. If you've been here, you can't sleep. You start to become paranoid. You start to try to figure out, how can I shut this down? If I'm going to go to sleep, I'm going to have to have a TV on maybe. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna get through the day, I've gotta stay super busy. You start to avoid certain people. Maybe again they didn't do anything, but it's like your presence just makes me feel guilty. Your presence just reminds me of who that I was before this was so heavy on my heart. And then the effects before God is it's it's just like, yeah, it's especially him, right? It's like this weird thing. So like for so many people, like, I just don't feel like reading my Bible. I just don't feel like praying. I just don't feel like coming to, to family meal, to fight club, to Sunday gathering. It's, 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 it's just weird. Like, if I go there, my guilt, my anxiety is just going to get jacked up through the roof, and I don't want to deal with it. But the vicious cycle that we create in is as we keep stuffing the candy wrappers of those grilts down, it just grows. And it just gets deeper. And we've got to do more to numb it. We've got to do more to escape. And so we want to distract it away. We want to deny it away. Or we're going to detach it away. And then when we continue to not acknowledge it, it goes in the direction of what we call toxic shame. And we'll talk more about shame in weeks to come. Toxic shame says, well, I'm not going to deal with my guilt. And if I dig down in that enough, then I start to think, I'm a mistake. It's not just I did something wrong. I am wrong. And so why should I even try? I'll never be good enough to be forgiven. I've asked for forgiveness. I've tried this so many times and I just keep failing. So I just give up. And then where does that go? It goes one step further usually. So unrecognized, undealt with, unbrought to God guilt moves to toxic shame. So it moves from I did something wrong to now I am just wrong. Why should I try? And then it goes one more step that sometimes we don't realize. And that is to shamelessness. So if you go from I'm not, I'm not going to deal with what I did wrong before God. Now I'm going to think I am wrong. Then shamelessness is who gives a care? Put the pedal to the metal, baby. I'm just gonna live it. I'm just gonna be who I who the enemies told me that I am. So now you become careless, you get wild, and and, and you you've just been caught by the one who sets out to steal, kill, and destroy. 
now what you are in your sin is you think you are so free that all you are is a rat on a wheel. Running, having yourself a good time, going nowhere, weary and exhausted, enslaved. And at the heart of this is pride. It takes a lot of humility to get off that wheel of shame and shamelessness. To say, I'll, I'll own up to that. Or to say, I really believe I could be forgiven for that. Some of you think that's humility. But it's pride. It is not humble to say, I'm so bad that God could never forgive me. That's pride. You think your guilt is greater than your God. So maybe think for a second or this afternoon or this week, what would your own personal version of Psalm 32, 3 and 4 sound like? But the good news is it's not, that's not what this whole psalm's about. It's two verses. So not only do we have to Accept to stop rejecting the feeling of guilt and accepting the prison of guilt, but we have to receive the forgiveness of God and embrace the freedom of God. We see this in verses 5 through 11 and verses 1 and 2, but 5 through 11. What did David's reception of the guilt look like? Well, it looked like no more denial, no more saying, not a big deal, no more distraction, no more I'm going to numb it through substances or experiences or work or even religion. That's our. Oh, maybe we got to time out and talk about that a second, right? Usually, the way we deal with our guilt in Christian cultures is not through rebellion. It's through religion, and I mean that in a negative sense. It's like, I'm going to be the best Christian in the world. I'm going to do better and try harder. I'm going to show up early to everything. I'm going to be the most faithful person in the world. And that's emptiness. It's a false gospel if that's what we're doing to deal with our guilt. Time back in. Or detachment. So David says, no more denial, no more distraction dealing with this, and no more detachment. Like, I'm just going to stay away from everybody. No. He feels the feeling. That's what he's telling us in verses 3 and 4. He feels it. Oh my, that's not easy. If you've been denying it, and distracting it, and detaching from it for so long, you better be scared to death, because it's scary. That you're going to sit and you're going to feel it. And that's what we're trying to say. We're going to say it every week in this series. It's the first thing you got to do is you got to feel it. You got to feel it. And then you got to tell the truth about it. Notice the way that David does it here. He, he acknowledged his sin to him, he didn't cover his iniquity, he confessed his transgressions to the Lord. He did it clearly. There's no self-protection. There's no more versions of the truth. This, this is what it is. The, the, the biblical definition for confession is just, I'm going to agree with God. And when you're agreeing with God, there's, there's no need to make up stories anymore. He knows it all. And he knows your angles. David's like, no more covering up. No more cover-ups. Coming clean. And ultimately, he gives it to God. He confesses it. He says it out loud to the Lord. 
And I want to encourage you to do that this week. If you act, in, I think, in obedience to God's word here, is, is, is to say it out loud to him. You can be by yourself, obviously. Just say, this is what I feel. I'm coming clean. And I'm going to say it out loud to you, God. Now, what is God's response? Let's click back to verses 1 and 2. Is, is God sitting there waiting? I've been waiting for you to say that so I can drop a hammer on you. I've, been, I've, I've got the, you know, like you're thinking of this court scene. It's like I've got my guards over here and they're just waiting. I'm waiting for you to come clean. You know, some of you have had people like that in your lives. You may have had parents like that. You may have friends like that. And they're just waiting for you to give them the goods so they can prosecute you, pounce on you, say, I knew it. I told you so. Now you're finally going to get what's coming to you. I always had this sneaking suspicion. I was right. I'm vindicated. You really are that bad of a person. And I really am that discerning. Praise the Lord, that is not how God is. What happens when we come clean? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. He is not waiting to drop the hammer on you. He is waiting to forgive you and to have restored fellowship with you. That's what he's waiting on. He's wanting you to come out from under your cover-up so that he can cover you. He wants to take your guilty record, your rap sheet, that is, that is sinful and shameful, and what does God want to do that? He doesn't want to take it and rub it in your face and say, see, see, see who you are? Get it together, son. Get it together, daughter. No, he's, he wants to take that rap sheet and he wants to rip it up. He wants to say, I'll own that. He wants to give you the type of life that you live in no deceit. Man, isn't all this image management so stressful? Having to fake, having to give this version of yourself, having to keep up with your lies. It's wearisome. Having a, all that distraction, denial, and detachment, man, it just burns you out, and God wants to free you from that. It's not saying now you become a perfect person. It's just saying you, you now you li you're living in light of the truth. And it might be ugly sometimes. But you're real with God. Blessed. That's a churchy word, isn't it? But what it's saying is, 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 is flourishing, fulfilled, joyful, peace. I don't got to carry on under that image management anymore. I don't have to live in condemnation and secrecy. And so how can David now live once that he's experienced forgiveness? Verses 6 through 11 show us this vision of him living a life of freedom. See, God not only forgives us, we've got to see that. Why does God forgive us? Forgiveness is not the ends. 
Forgiveness is not the goal. The forgiveness of God is not, well, I'm forgiven, now what? No, forgiveness is not the goal. A relationship with God is the goal that is lived in freedom. God forgives you because He loves you. He's not just a judge, although we use that analogy. He's your Father. He wants to be with you. He wants to see you live the life He created you to live. He doesn't want you walking around guilty, looking over your shoulder all the time. He wants you to be free. He wants you to dream again. Some of you right now, I didn't prepare to say this, are probably just feel so trapped in looking at pornography. When God wants you to be set free from that, so you're dreaming about going to the mission field. There's some of you probably trapped in some type of substance abuse, whether prescribed or not, and you're just racked with this guilt. And you're just afraid, when's somebody going to find out? Fill in the blank. God wants you to set you free. Not free so now that you become perfect, as if I can't dream until I'm perfect. So you can walk in the light. Not just with him, but with others. And that's what we see in verses 6 through 11, really. David is not just free from something, guilt. He's free for something. People who live racked with guilt are just survivors. I mean, you might as well be a fly. Right? You're just existing. And then, staying in that vicious cycle of numbing it, God wants to free you to be a human, to be a son. God, when God kicks guilt out of the driver's seat, we see verses 6 and 7. In the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Now there's this confidence. Verse 7, we experience God not as someone we need to hide from, but now God is our hiding place. He preserves us from trouble. He surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. So instead of living life with this paranoia, now we, we grow in this confidence. We're surrounded by God. And so verse 10, we see David lives in that surrounding joy of the covenant faithfulness of God. But what came first? Verses 3 through 5 come before this forgiveness and freedom. And it needs to be said, this isn't something that just happens once in our life. If you read First and Second Samuel, you see David, it's, it's not like, oh, one confession, now I'm good. No, as Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. Some of you are rolling your eyes at this in your heart right now because you're thinking, I've been there, done that, and it didn't work. But the thing is, God is not about getting you, giving you something that works so you can now move on with your life. God is about engaging you with a relationship with Him. And any real relationships, there's going to be sin, there's going to be pain. But God says, I want to be there with you, and I want us to reconcile. And we're probably going to do this a million times. But guess what? I'm here for it. One of the things that my dear wife loves to do more than anything in the world is to clean up vomit. That's a joke. She would tell you it's the opposite of that. And why I say some things I say from up here, I don't know. But I can feel whatever emotion about that later. She can deal with it. 
but here I go. So I remember one night after having some lovely, a lovely large meal at Zaxby's, beginning to get really sick, and then proceeding to decorate the walls with that Zaxby's not long after that. Now it was very messy, very disturbing. Probably looked like they'd you know, filmed Exorcist Part 2, if there's not already a Part 2 in there. But you know what that was, that mess was, if it wasn't to her, is it was a gift to me. Because that, that's what it took to feel better. You know, sometimes you got to puke to feel better, don't you? You just got to get it out. And you know what it's like before you can get it out. It's bad. And then it's bad coming out. But then when it comes out, at least in some types of sicknesses, it's like, okay, I can start to breathe again. And if I don't act like a kid, I can help clean up. That's, that's probably what's going to have to happen for some of us. And it's scary. There's some of you who know how scary that is when it comes to throw up, and so you hold it in, and you're just like, I'd rather be sick for a day than do that. But what, you start holding that stuff in for years, and you're stuck in bed, whether literally or metaphorically. Well, you've got to do, we've got to do what David did, and it's going to be messy probably. Some of it's going to be messy. Feel the feeling. You might need somebody with you to do that. I want to argue that all of these things, if real change is going to take place in our heart because of the way that God's created us, we're going to have to do this before God, sincerely, individually, but we also need to do it communally. We need a couple people we can trust who give us grace, who aren't fixers but are friends, and, and we need to feel. We need to tell the truth. We need to get those secrets out to somebody. God knows them. Start with him. Guess what? He knows them. And he loves you. We've got to quit managing our image. We've got to believe it's the truth that sets us free. We've got to give it to God. So this is where we get to this biblical word, repentance. There's, there's no dealing with guilt without repentance. So when we say give it to God, we're not saying, well, we just have this conversation about how we feel with God. No, there's a call here. Is we turn from our sin and we turn to Him. That's what repentance is. It's two turns. You've got to turn from it, but you've got to turn to Him. You're giving your guilt to some God. Every one of us. Repentance is when we give our guilt to the one and only true God. And then we got to be patient. Again, this isn't about a flipping a light switch. It's a part of what we talked about last week. The talk, the time, tears, and the time. Well, how in the world can we have any confidence to do that? To go Zaxby's all over the side of the wall with our guilt. I don't know. But the good news is, is that God does. So it's where our text ends today. Is we've got to anchor our response to guilt outside of ourselves. 
It cannot be anchored inside of ourselves. It cannot. It will be a losing battle. You will say, that didn't work. You will say, that was too much. You will say, I will, I'll just keep distracting, denying, and detaching. Because at least I know I can survive that. And that's what we do, right? We do what we can survive. All of us in here are scared to death of freedom in certain areas of our lives. Or we would walk right into it. Because the prison door is open. But we're staying right in the cell because we're like, at least I know what this is like. So we might think, well, this is nice, Psalm 32, David. Oh, how precious, how sweet little preacher man to talk about forgiveness. But, you know, you and David don't really know what it's like to have done the things that I've done. And if you had done the things that I've done, you'd probably keep the secrets that I keep. And you'd probably realize that when my stuff comes out, it's not just going to get on the wall. It might kill everybody around me. Well, let's think. Do we know what's likely behind this psalm, Hebrew scholars debate whether the Bathsheba incidents behind Psalm 32 or just Psalm 51. But whatever it is, it's the same David. Here's the reality of what David did, if you don't know it. So David is supposed to be out at war, leading his dudes into battle. And instead, he's, I'm the king, I'll just stay home. And because he's the king, he's walking around on his rooftop, and he notices this beautiful young lady who is bathing. And he thinks to himself, I'm the king, she's pretty, I can get what I want. And so he takes her. And he has sex with her. What is it called when a person of power takes advantage of someone who can't say no and does that? I think we do it a disjustice, and we do Bathsheba a big disjustice when we say they had an affair. It doesn't sound like an affair to me. It sounds like something worse. Like a Harvey Weinstein or all these other criminals of our day. And so then David thinks, what am I going to do? Because guess what? She gets pregnant. Well, it turns out her husband is this old boy named Uriah. And if you read earlier in the book behind this in 2 Samuel, Uriah the Hittite is not just a soldier, but David had been through some really hard times. And David had 37 men who were his mighty men. These were his ride-and-die guys. These were guys who one time David wanted a drink of water, and they loved David so much, they went behind enemy lines and got a cup of water and brought it back to him. And guess who's one of those men? Uriah. So he's just taken and abused Uriah's, his, his, this dude who's got his back's life, his wife. And so he's like, what am I going to do? So he says, I've got to do something here. You know, so it's a cover-up, right? And so he says, Uriah, come, come, let's come hang out, buddy. So he calls to the front lines, Joab, send Uriah home. He thinks, if I can get Uriah home and I can get him to go have sex with his wife, then they'll think it's his baby. And so Uriah comes, and he's like, Uriah, man, you're, I love you, dude, we're bros, go home, enjoy yourself. And Uriah says, how could I go home and enjoy myself while all of our fellow brothers are out fighting this war? He's like a man of integrity. And so he goes, says he goes home, but he won't even go in the house. He sleeps out on the front steps. And so David's like, what am I going to do? 
And so the next time he calls your eye over and he says, I know what I'll do, I'll get your eye drunk. If I can get him drunk, then I can get him to go home and, and we'll get this taken care of. So he does, he gets your eye drunk. But your eye is still such a man of integrity, he, he won't even give in to his desires drunk. And so David's like, okay, well, what am I going to do now? So now it's like it's moving from this type of, of evil to we're going to have to kill the dude. Because I can't make myself look that bad. And so he's, he gives Uriah, his friend, his faithful, mighty man, a letter to take to Joab. And then he doesn't realize, jo Uriah doesn't realize within that letter is his, his fate is sealed. Because it says, Joab, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put Uriah at the very front. And when the battle gets really heated, I just want y'all to draw back a little bit to make sure he dies. And it works. The cover-up's going great. And this is how hard-hearted David is. It's when it's reported that, that, that Uriah's died, his response is, well, things happen. It's war. Is what it is. And then he takes Bathsheba to be his wife. Now again, poor old Bathsheba, she gets roped into all this stuff that none of the text says. What say does she have in that? She don't even get to grieve the death of her husband. She's got to be now married to this dude that just took her. And then the baby dies. And David's sitting in this. Likely what's behind this text, but if not this one, at least the one we read earlier. So don't be telling me none of this stuff. David doesn't know what it's like to feel real guilt. I expressed my feelings of guilt to somebody this week who's been through a lot in life, and they're like, oh, what'd you do, steal somebody's candy wrapper? So maybe you think that about a naive preacher like me, but don't think that about David. So how did David come out of that? Well, he wouldn't come out of it looking inside because he's imperfect, obviously, and it's going to keep failing. He wasn't going to come out of it looking around him because if you read the rest of the story of David, he's going to have to live with the consequences of his sin his whole life. There's going to be division and disruption in his family his whole life because of this. See, some of you say, I, I can only deal with my guilt if I feel good about myself or I look out and see no consequences for my sin. Well, guess what? That's not going to happen. The only way to deal with your guilt is not looking in, it's not looking out, it's looking up. And the good news is that when we look up, we see not David as our hope, we see the son of David as our hope. The good news is we have a better king than David, one who doesn't take advantage of us, one who doesn't use us to make himself look good, but one who gives himself for us so that we can actually be declared to be good. Jesus came for the guilty. It's who he hung out with. It's who he wanted to know God's grace because he was God's grace. Jesus looked at the woman whom they came to stone as she was caught in adultery. And what does he say? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Go and sin no more. 
And Jesus not only lived for the guilty, he died for the guilty. We were guilty and he took the fall. We were the one who did the deal and he said, it was me, it was all on me, I'll take it. The fancy words for this, one is propitiation. Which means that Jesus was the sacrifice for our sins that we deserve. We deserve the death penalty and Jesus said, I will take it in their place. Which leads us then to the next big word, justification. That is now because Jesus was our propitiation, our sacrifice in our place. Now we are declared not guilty. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is, feels too good to be true, doesn't it? Do you know that no matter how, whatever you've done, if you've placed your full faith in Jesus and bowed your knee to Him as King and given Him your guilt, when God looks at you, He sees Jesus' righteousness. No matter what you do. This is why people don't like grace. Colossians 2. We have a big debt, but this is what happened to our debt at the cross. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. That is, Jesus on the cross nailed our sins there. We bear them no more. But then also He was victorious over all the enemies and all the evil that would want to accuse us and hold that up in our face. That's what you've got to anchor your response to guilt in. It's got to be a righteousness that is outside of you. You don't deal with your guilt by looking in the mirror. You don't deal with your guilt by keeping a journal about how good you did this week. You don't deal with your guilt by asking how do other people feel about me or how are they responding to me this week. You deal with your guilt by putting your eyes on Jesus and throwing yourself at Him and saying, my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. Guilt keeps free people behind bars. Guilt keeps people who have a father who loves them from just bringing their trash out into the cans. We've got to remind one another of this. As we prepare now to come to the Lord's table, that's what we want to do. If you're new with us every week, we respond to Jesus' call to do this in remembrance of Him. Uh, there's nothing magical about the Lord's Supper, communion, but there is something deeply spiritual. There's a participation in the work of Christ and in the presence of Christ that Jesus invites us into as we take the bread and the cup to be reminded that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus.